0: In an impossible history, anything can happen. The facts of history can merge with the fiction of storytelling. And this is what Marie Roberts has done with her book, The Impossible History of Trotsky's Sister. Welcome, Marie. Hi, Jan, and hi, everyone. (laughs) Well, 1950s Box Hill. There's four women at afternoon tea. What have these women got in common?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, the four women, you mean including Olga, my protagonist. On the surface, she doesn't have a lot in common, I guess, with these women, except that they've welcomed her into 1950s Australia. She's a she's a recent um, refugee from the war, and uh, they're all older women, so... Uh, all have um, grown-up families, as, as does Olga. I guess she's got that in common with them. They are stay-at-home women, so they are women who um, saw the Second World War and came through that, but um, are largely women who haven't worked, have husbands that have worked and are now retired. Experience of life is probably very different from Olga's. We get some humour
0: at this afternoon tea, the Lamingtons. <laughs> <laughs> Olga cannot understand these Lamingtons.
1: Yes, which Olga can't remember the name of, uh, but she's she's resolved in true, you know, communist fashion, to uh, party worker fashion, to make sure that she gets the name right. Um, in the end, which she which she does, they politely um, uh, kind of correct her, and she's resolved to make sure that she calls it the right the right thing but she's not really a fan of the old Lamingtons uh finds them a bit dry but doesn't feel that she can say that to her gracious hosts.
0: The others have family. What happened to her family?
1: She her family were largely executed which is not very not very nice but that's that's the actual history. So she and she herself was um, executed. That's not a spoiler alert for those who haven't read the book because it is on the back of the, of the novel in the blurb. What I've done is given her a, an imagined life where she survived the camps and survived uh, the massacre that was carried out at Stalin's orders. Her uh, brother, Leon Trotsky, and her children uh, and her um, ex-husband, Lev Kamenev, were all executed by Stalin as well.
0: We get a glimpse of her back in a gulag, and it's so cold. You say there was no smell. That's, ah. That's, oh. But it did give her time to think and get into discussions because there was nothing else much to do, work and talk, very little to eat in this gulag. You have her going to a displaced person's camp, and then a year at Bonegilla, there were other russians and jews that went through bolingilla but she doesn't want to mix with some of them because they're bundists
1: yeah so the bundists are an interesting very interesting group of people and and it's uh i have written it up as a conflict for olga that's not to say that and there still are there's a Bund still um active in melbourne it was one of the Um, huge sites of kind of the international Bundist movement which was largely a a movement of polish jewish workers they fell out with the communists very early on before um, just before 1917 uh, because lenin and the party apparatus decided that jews should not have a separate jewish organization as part of the communist party so Mm Uh, There was a split there, as there were in many many of those. There were the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks and the Bundists and the non-Bundists. And so, you know, Olga being Jewish and her brother being Jewish, could have, I suppose, sided with that part of the the party, but they didn't. Um, They stayed with the Bolsheviks.
0: You mentioned the word communism. Now it's 1950s Melbourne. It's not a very favoured word. If you were a communist, what would you expect?
1: Yeah, that's true. You know, the Communist Party had been through enormous upheavals by the 1950s in Australia, the Australian Communist Party, partly as a result of trying to pivot to follow Stalin, I guess. Stalin was one of the allies in the war. So actually the Communist Party was... Communism was quite, in a way, favourably looked on during the period that we were allies with um, the Soviet Union. But immediately afterwards, you know, the Cold War began and things like the Petrov Royal Commission, uh, the Menzies government tried to ban the Communist Party yet again. Um, They had a referendum on that, in fact, which was defeated. So there was a lot of uh, starting, came to know as part of the Cold War, such as uh, witch hunts of progressive people spying the early uh, days of ASIO had occurred. Already by that stage, and and that's the context in which Olga's um, finding herself.
0: Well, Olga even had a spy hanging out watching her.
1: Yes, she does. And yeah, ASIO is a fairly new organisation by this stage. For example, migrants who were deported as a result of ASIO involvement.
0: At Beverly's house one afternoon, she meets Beverly's daughter Vera, and she noticed that Vera had a look about her, a conspiratorial eye. Olga welcomes Vera as a visitor to her own home and she learns that Vera has two secrets.
1: What are they? Yes, she does, uh, and secrets from different people, I guess. So she has joined the communist movement at some stage in her early adulthood, and she's also pregnant. Um, in 1950s Australia, neither was really welcome. No, no.
0: Olga had worked for women's rights, as you say, dilemmas of motherhood. She compared the colourful ethnic practices back in older Russia of bride price, honour crimes, 19-year-olds forced to marry and a wife beating by half-starved, crazed, drunken husbands. The revolution gave women real work rather than slave labor. But after the war, Stalin exalted them as mothers and wives again, and the old way started to creep back in. 1950s Melbourne, that wasn't much different, was it?
1: No, no, and Olga is shocked I guess, by by the fact that you know there is still quite a lot of oppression of women and and the and lack of uh, liberation or a lack of even talk of it um, amongst the women that she that she talks to. It shocks her because of course that was something that they had been doing for many, many years in the Soviet Union. they're were, they were one of the original kind of feminist movements, if you want to um, call it that.
0: So what were the choices? For an unmarried mother in Melbourne in 1950s.
1: Yeah, well, they weren't very good, especially if you didn't have the support of your family, which Vera, it turns out, Vera doesn't have. She is persuaded by her parents to do what many young women did, which is to go and have her baby at an unmarried mother's home, uh, for want of a better term. Uh, She ends up with one that's run by Catholic nuns.
0: Like Olga in the Gulag, where she had time to think for herself, Vera has time to think in the convent. At least Vera knew she would get out alive, but she also wondered how changed she would be. It was up to Olga to get Vera and her baby out. And not with a sword, but for freedom she was, this is a lovely quote from uh, Marie Roberts' book, Joan of Arc without the priests and kings, but with the prostitutes as her chorus. This came from the consequences of blackmailing an ASIO spy, and you'll have to read it. Very clever. How did she get her photographs developed?
1: Olga goes through many, many tactics to try and, uh, you know, in true sort of political style, to try and spring Vera from the uh, from the from the convent. She tries to enlist the help of the Australian Communist Party, who. Um, are not terribly um, enthusiastic, but one thing she does call on them to do is to help her develop. The photographs that she's taken lead to her being able to get Vera out of the the convent. So she calls on her comrades to assist her through the kind of um, photographic development process that they use for their own newspaper because they, of course, didn't trust others to develop their photographs on their behalf. They had their own um, method of doing that. Because this is
0: where Olga is talking to Greg, or Grigor, as she prefers to call him, about what she has learnt about Russia and is still learning about
1: Australia. Yes. Thanks, Jan. So, Olga, you cannot. How can you know what it is like to be Russian? I cannot really know what it is to be Australian. I'm surprised many times, all the time, by what I do not know about you that you have a native race amongst your people who you pretend invisible, that if you're a woman and you marry, you must give up job, that you lock up young women simply because pregnant, that your spies do not track the Nazis, but those who oppose them? (laughs) She's got good (laughs) questions
0: there. Just why did we do it? Olga can be seen as a crazy old lady who had delusions of being a Soviet power broker, but they realised that she really knew some stuff and they give her a new role. What's that?
1: Oh, yes. Well, she sort of gives a self-title. They bring her in to produce and direct a, a, a play, a revolutionary play, which there certainly was, uh, it's set in the New Theatre, which was a, a huge part of the Australian progressive cultural movement, I guess, um, in the fifth, But it was a very big thing. It, it produced a lot of very progressive plays uh, over the years. And so Olga's given the job of um, commissioning a revolutionary play because she was head of the Russian Theatre for a time uh, under the Bolsheviks. And that was too, too good a gem for me to pass up, really, in uh, resurrecting Olga and uh, giving her uh, a new lease of life. And this play-
0: that she writes has a police interruption.
1: There's a lot of discussion amongst the committee about whether they should allow nudity in the play and uh, that's considered by some to be provocative and Olga kind of says, well, bring it on.
0: So we get the ASIO report and the outcome. And one of the things at the end of the book, Olga writes her own manifesto and I particularly
1: liked the last item. What was that? Make sure there's sausage in your pocket whenever you leave the house and also chalk.
0: (laughs) Only a woman who's lived through dire necessity would do that and have it written down. What happened inside the Russian Revolution and what were its effects on Melbourne in the 1950s? Marie Roberts has given us Olga and a light-hearted, well-researched look in The Impossible History of Trotsky's Sister.
1: People can find the book by going to my website, mariefroberts.com.au, and I'd be pleased to get feedback from any readers. I'm also available for book clubs. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed Olga's story.
2: Thank you very much, Marie. Thanks, Jan. The real world and the supernatural converge in Brendan Colley's debut novel, The Signal Line. So, Brendan, welcome to 3CR. Wonderful to be here and talking with you, David. Thank you. There is a conventional dynamic in the storyline behind The Signal Line. Gio returns to Hobart to tidy up his parents' estate, but comes into conflict with his older brother, Wes. Both have their own personal histories and their histories with each other. What can you tell us about the two?
3: Well, Gio was really the product of a question that I had, that I wanted to explore in a novel. And um, only once I had the question first in my hands that i go searching for a character who I could use to really explore that. And the question was this. I had just at that time finished um, a previous novel, which I'd spent uh, six and a half years writing, and it was roundly rejected and I've by that point been writing for a good 19 years and for the first time I was questioning my dream of writing and the amount of time that I was spending on this on a daily and a weekly basis for, you know, 20 years and so um, my character Gio is at that point in his own journey, a 30-year-old aspiring violist, chasing a dream which he has sufficient chal- uh, talent to justify you know that pursuit of it but he is perhaps wondering whether he he has the the, the talent to um to realize it and once i had geo in front of me i then needed that antagonistic force and that materializes in the form of Wiz, who himself Um, um, had a a very special talent for the violin that he himself has rejected. And and this is the starting point for the conflict between the two brothers. They both disagree with each other when it comes to the family home. Correct. That's the reason or the motivation for Gio's return, because he has been living in um, Italy for the past two years. He's on the audition circuit. That's really his, um, his true aim, to, to win a place on a, um, a major um, European orchestra. And he's come home with the view to sell the family home that is his shared inheritance with his brother, Wes. Their parents have passed on. And um, Wes um, refuses to sell. Geo wants to. The house represents very different things um, to them. And um, Gio wants to be done with that part of his past. And equally, it will be a benefit in helping him to sustain his pursuit of his dream abroad. But Wes wants to hold on to the house because
2: he's almost trying to hold on to a past or a stability
3: that he once knew that no longer exists. Yes. The brothers have been estranged and Geo isn't aware of the, um, the situation that he's walking into with Wes. Um, since he last saw his brother uh, uh, two years before, um, everything is unraveling in Wes's life. His, his family, um, his, he, he's, he's on the cusp of potentially losing his wife and his son, um, his job security is in question and the only thing that he has that is solid and in front of him is this house and um, he is not going to let that go. Now Geo brings together a ragtag group of
2: individuals who help paint the house and you know backpackers and such like that actually live in the house in return for them painting it and they're all living in the living room in chairs not in bedrooms it's
3: a sort of disrupted environment, disruptive reality. That was never on my mind at the outset when I start the story, it, it the story really devolved into the situation where it became clear to me that um you know Wes's personality is so big that Gio felt that if he could sort of um bring these quirky interesting, free people into the house to help him paint it and prepare it for sale, it, they would act as a sort of a buffer to um, to to, to Wes's personality. They are also
2: intersecting lines. They're all on their own track and path, and they intersect for a moment and then diverge again, which we'll come to in a minute, because over the top of this, conventional domestic drama we actually have the supernatural a ghost train a bit like the flying Dutchman that appears out of the mist the train was huge and imposing a breathing bull and it hit me my god the ghost train the front light was as stunning as I'd imagined from Bill Bright's account large and pulsating like a full moon the lead locomotive cast an ominous silhouette and a thought flash through my mind. So this is what dreams look like. The significance of the train here, Brenton.
3: Well, it's interesting to me at least. um, The very first part of the story that came to me was the arc of this train. I had, um, when I was working on that previous novel I mentioned, I came across this fun article about ghost trains in Europe. And it so captured my imagination, just the detail and the stories around them, that I set aside that uh, that project. And I spent a good couple of sessions devising this arc of a, of, a, of a ghost train appearing on the old tramway lines and decommissioned railway lines in Tasmania. And I, but I had no idea whose story it belonged to, and I put it aside for over a year. And when the t- time came and I had that question that I mentioned, the reason why I thought it might fit was because there's nothing more certain of its direction than a train on a track and and nothing may be more imposing. And yet, could there be anything more elusive than, than something that present and solid that can slip its path? And that train really symbolized to me the, the feeling that Gio had of his dream vanishing in front of his eyes. The train,
2: in fact, even though it is fantastical, is actually a metaphor for the lives these people are leading, wanting to get on. When I get on, I have no intention of getting off. And this is what Sten says to Gio. Sten is actually searching for the train, someone Gio meets. But Geo has the same
3: attitude
2: when it comes to getting into an
3: orchestra. Yes. And the the character, Sten, who is the the Swedish ghost train hunter, and he's a 60 year old um, person who has been chasing this train for 40 years. It's his singular goal to intercept this train and board it. And so when the train arrives in, um, in Hobart, Um, Very soon in tow comes the Swedish ghost train hunter. And the reason why I felt this worked as a reflection to Gio is that Gio, as a 30-year-old, was in such a state of of angst over this dream that, that felt so close and within reach. And yet here is Sten, someone who's chasing something that is unattainable, And yet he is completely at peace in being in that, the pursuit of it. And I thought that that could help Gio to really question his own dream and the way he thinks about it and what it means to be chasing something. Also, then, there's another dimension. Consciousness
2: has its own dimension where everything that has happened or is going to happen. Exists. And this comes to the fore in an incident that occurs in two different time zones. At one point, Wes has Geo handcuffed as a form of retribution, and it's the same scenario that has occurred before. So
3: it's almost like life repeating itself. Yes. And this idea of consciousness, I think, is really. a reflection of of something I've just been thinking about per, personally. And so these sort of um, ideas, um, you know, as they do for uh, a, a creator uh, or an artist, sort of kind of seeps into, you know, your own work. And um, I found um, some of these characters sort of to have the right voice or to be of the right heart or mind, to really sort of make those sort of statements or hold those sorts of, of beliefs. And it seemed to fit within the theme and the ideas of this, this this story.
2: And you also mentioned that the train exists in two forms, the train and the ghost train. We're dealing with two things, just as life in a body is a human being, but separated from the body, it is spirit. And these two things exist in individuals as well, because Wes, even though he's a policeman, has a natural affinity with the violin, more so than Gio with his instrument. Gio is more disciplined, but has doesn't quite have the same flair. They are
3: two people almost
2: in their own right.
3: Almost as if they could sort of put themselves together, they would both have everything that they wanted. And, um, you know, it's interesting that disconnect between the two brothers isn't something that draws them together, but it's something that that pushes them apart. But also then,
2: like the train, we choose a path or a track or a station, we get on board and our path in life, our journey, the direction we take is determined by the train, We can't get off till the next station. A decision then will lead us on another path. And so, even though this is a fantastical concept, it actually works quite well. It's quite intriguing. But, Brendan, I'm afraid we're going to have to end the interview there. We've run out of time. The novel is called The Signal Line, the author is Brendan Colley, and it is a Transit Lounge release. So, Brendan, thank you very much for your time today.
3: Wonderful chatting, David. I appreciate it.